says this. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let me pray, and then we'll have a look at that together. Father, we um, thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible book um, of Exodus. We thank you for all of the things it teaches us about you, about us, about Jesus. Um, and we just pray that as we look at this small section of it today, that you will really speak to our hearts. Thank you that you know each one of us and you know what's going on in our lives and that you know what each of us needs to hear today. And so I pray that we would all hear that thing that we need to hear from you by your spirit. Amen. There are times in life when situations feel just completely out of our control. Sometimes um, it's in the small things. I remember once, uh, and some of you will have heard this story before, probably multiple times, apologies. Um, but it was just after I had started driving, so I was around uh, 22, and I was driving to work um, in red car one morning. It was winter, um, and it was the morning, but it was getting darker and darker, and then all of a sudden, the snow came down, and it was snow unlike anything I'd seen before. It was, it was thick, these kind of massive flakes coming down, so thick that I could only see kind of one or two feet in front of me in the car, and I was on a road going at 70 miles an hour at this point pretty scary. I had no way of controlling the situation. I just didn't know what to do. And so what I did was, I just laughed. I just kind of maniacally, in a terrified way, just laughed. And like, I think I slowed down a bit. And, and, and I was just thinking, I, I have no idea what I'm meant to do in this situation. I'd only just started, learn, just started driving. Um, thankfully, like nothing hit me. Uh, the snow kind of got a bit lighter and everything was fine. But it, for a moment, I was out of control in that situation. Oh, let me tell you about another um, driving situation. So this was again that same year, driving back from red car this time, still winter, uh, dark because it was after work. Um, it, was, it was raining, it was dark. I was on the A19, and that bit, if you know the A19, coming kind of towards Hartlepool, just before you get to the flyover, just before you get to the A66 turn off. So there's kind of four or five lanes it was heavy traffic, but it was steady going, so I was going 60, 70 miles an hour in the fast lane. Um, and all of a sudden, the car in, front, front, car in front of me put its brakes on. Now, like I said, it was wet and we were quite close, so I put my brakes on. But I think I put them on too hard, and so I lost control of the car. The car um, 
just in a split second, I found the car turning, spinning, uh, and, and I ended up doing a 180, facing the opposite direction, uh, two lanes across, standstill, on the A19 at rush hour. Um, it was, um, this time I didn't laugh, that wasn't my response. <laughs> Uh, but by the grace of God, even though it was rush hour, nothing hit me. And by the grace of God, I'd only just taken over, overtaken a police car. And um, that, that car stopped the traffic. I was like a wreck. But I managed to turn around and eventually I got home a little shaken. Um, I was totally out of control in that situation. Um, but I survived, so all is well. Now, I'm sure many of us know that feeling of, of being out of control. But that feeling of being out of control is sometimes in much bigger things than those two um, examples I've gave, uh, I gave. Maybe it was in a situation where you were handed a, a, a letter of redundancy at work. Or you, you um, heard of a terminal diagnosis for a loved one. Maybe it was when you spend time pondering the war in Ukraine or the, or the climate crisis. Or perhaps it's when you see um, friends or family making decisions that you know are not going to turn out well for them, but you're just too powerless to do anything in that situation. There are many times in life when things just seem out of control for us. And the question is, what do you do in those times? How do you cope? Well, we're back in our new uh, series in Exodus, and last week we looked at chapter one. And we saw that things were really not going well for God's people. The Israelites, or as they're called here in Exodus, the Hebrews. God's people, the Hebrews, were in Egypt. They were brought there several, several generations ago by God when the world was in crisis. Famine was across m much of the land, large swathes of the world. But in the middle of this famine, God's people had been a blessing to Egypt. God had brought Joseph, one of his people, to Egypt and he prepared Egypt for this time of famine so that they survived, so that they had food. They were a blessing to Egypt. So Joseph was there in Egypt. He brought his family to Egypt and they made it their home. And that's why they're in Egypt at the start of the book of Exodus. But some time has passed since the time of Joseph. Joseph, like I said, brought his family of 70 to Egypt but over the generations, that family had grown and it had become so numerous that it was resemb resembling a nation amongst the nation of Egypt. Exodus says that they, the land was filled with them. But as time passed, something else happened as well. All that Joseph had done for Egypt rescuing them from famine, had been forgotten. The Pharaoh, who was ruler at that time, who'd experienced all that blessing, was long gone. And another Pharaoh was now in power. And this new Pharaoh was not sympathetic to God's people. In fact, he saw them as a threat. And so, because of that, in a brutal act of genocide, he decided to do something about this threat. He ordered that all of the Hebrew baby boys were killed. That would stop the growth of the Hebrews. That would quell this threat, he thought. By the end of chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh's policy is that every single baby boy to be born would be thrown in the river Nile. These are horrific times for God's people. That's the backstory that brings us to chapter 2. And now we move into chapter 2, and the focus turns to one family. 
In fact, to a, to a young married couple who have found out that they're pregnant, a Hebrew couple, pregnant at the time when all baby boys are being thrown into the Nile that are born to Hebrews. Now, we're talking thousands of years ago here. There are no scans, no ways of knowing um, what sex the baby's going to be before it's born. So imagine how those nine months would have felt for that couple. All around you, friends and, and relatives are seeing their baby boys murdered by this bloodthirsty pharaoh. Imagine how that must have felt. And then your waters break. You go through the hours of labour. No pain relief, remember. No safe interventions if there are complications with the birth. But it goes well. The baby is born, and it's a boy. Now imagine how you feel. Pharaoh is powerful. His eyes are everywhere. If they disobey him, the consequences for them will be serious. And his command is very clear. You can't misunderstand it. This boy must be thrown into the Nile to die. But what he's doing is wrong. It's evil. And this is their baby boy. And they know somehow that there's something special about this boy. And so they go against Pharaoh's policy. They hide the boy. And that's pretty easy when he's a newborn. He, he's quiet. He hopefully sleeps a lot. Um, there are baby sounds around still because, remember, none of the girls are being killed. But as he gets older, it becomes more difficult to keep him a secret. They're bound to be found out. They can't keep hiding him. And so, in the end, they obey Pharaoh's edict. They put him in the night. They don't do it in the way that Pharaoh intended. They get a basket. They, they coat it with tar and pitch. They waterproof it, in other words. They put the baby in the basket and they put the baby into the Nile in the basket. Now, it's at, at this point, it's pretty reasonable to ask the question, what on earth were they thinking? What were they thinking might happen here? Remember that uh, the Nile isn't the beck in the Bird Valley. It's not even the River Tees. It's the, it's the longest river in the world. I think. I didn't actually fact check that. Is that right? I think that's right. It's the longest river in the world. The Nile is the centre point of activity for Egypt. It's where people get their water for drinking, for their animals, for their crops. Pharaoh's navy are patrolling the Nile. It would be used for, for fishing, for bathing. The sediment around it would be used for making mud bricks. And of course, now it's also the place of death. Hebrew baby boys are being thrown into it, thrown there to die. This is the hub of activity for Egypt. The baby that is put into this river is not going to remain a secret for long. So as they are there, this, these parents, as they put their baby into this place of death, what are they thinking? Well, to help us understand what they're thinking, we need to turn to the New Testament. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, verse 23. It's on page 1,210, if you've got one of the Bibles on the table. Hebrews chapter 11, page 1,210. Let me read verse 23. It says this. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child 
and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Here's what was going on in that moment of seeming madness. It was actually faith. They were trusting God. The world was out of their control. Pharaoh was on a rampage of evil. They were powerless to stop him, but they knew that what he was doing was evil. And so they didn't go along with it in the way that he intended. They knew that their boy was no ordinary child, and so they trusted God. They hid their baby for three months, despite what being found out might mean. And I think it's reasonable to assume that they continued to trust God when they placed him in that basket in the river, not knowing what was going to happen. They trusted that God was in control when they were not. They knew that this place of death could become a place of life. They didn't know how, but they trusted God. They trusted that God could somehow bring out of this bleak, dark, desperate situation something good. And when you see in that situation way beyond their control, you can't help but be both challenged and inspired. When you look at your life, just think about some of those situations in your life where you feel out of your depth, out of control, like you can't influence the situation. Look at those situations and think, what might trusting God look like for you in that situation? Few of us will face situations quite as desperate as these parents. But when we're in our own situations, they still feel frightening to us. We hate that feeling of, of not being able to manage the outcome. We hate looking on, seeing things going differently to how we would intend, differently to how they should, but knowing that there's nothing that we can do to guarantee the outcome. We are not in control. We do well to look at these parents. We do well to emulate their faith. What did they do? As far as they were able, even in the hardest circumstances, they sought to be faithful to God, to do the right thing, and then to trust God with the outcome. Is that easy? I'm sure it wasn't. Imagine it. Imagine putting that baby in the river. And it's not easy for us in our situations, but in the situations that we face that are beyond our control, we do well to copy these parents. To seek to be faithful to God and then to trust him with the outcome. Now I reckon that some of us hear this call to faith, call to trusting God in those situations. And we think, well, it's, yeah, it's all well and good, these kind of Bible characters displaying faith in these situations. But what about me? I'm too old, too young. I'm too damaged. I don't know enough about God. I'm not brave enough. That kind of faith is not for people like me. Well, let's keep going with the story. The baby's mother has put her boy in the basket, put him in the reeds along the banks of the Nile. Let's see what happens. Next we meet the boy's sister. Just a young girl. We don't know her age. Seven, ten. She's there. 
She's watching what happens. And what happens is extraordinary. Along comes, of all people, the daughter of the pharaoh. She's the, she's the princess. She spots the basket in the reeds. She has it brought to her and she realises that in it is a baby boy. But then what happens next is even more extraordinary. You see, Pharaoh's um, daughter realises that this baby is one of the Hebrews. So in that moment, she should have that baby thrown into the Nile. If she's going to follow her own father's orders, she should have it thrown into the Nile. And yet she takes pity on it. All the while, the baby's sister is watching. And she thinks fast. She emerges from the reeds and, and she approaches the princess. Shall I get a Hebrew woman to, to nurse this baby for you, she, she says. And the princess says yes. And so in an extraordinary turn of events, the baby's sister gets the baby's mother, who is then paid to bring up her own son, who should be dead, in the palace. He is safe. She is with him. They are in the palace of the Pharaoh. It's an incredible story. But here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice the faith of this girl, the baby's sister. You see, as the basket is placed in the river, she's there. She's watching, waiting to see if it involves hard times, struggles, doubts. Times when we feel like we have many questions and no answers. All of that is true. The Bible's realistic about that. We should expect the Christian life to um, include those things. But the Christian life isn't only that. It's also times when you act in faith and you get to see God doing things way beyond what you'd imagine. I wish I could just open the floor now and, and get to hear some of those stories. And maybe we can do some of that in our life group gatherings this week. Because I can tell you, there'll be many stories of God doing that. Let me share a couple um, that you may have heard before from mine and Kathy's life. I think of the time when um, Kathy and I were um, just getting married. Kathy was due to be doing a, a voluntary year um, for a Christian charity. Um, and she had to raise about £6,000, I think, to cover the cost of that year. At the time of our wedding, a couple of months before, we were, uh, before Kathy was due to start, uh, she'd raised... Nothing. <laughs> she'd been trying, but she'd raised nothing. And so we prayed about it. We sought um, to trust that God could provide. Well, as a wedding gift, someone gave us £1,000 towards Kathy's year. It was a real booster to confidence that God could provide. But then it kind of slowed down. The money wasn't coming in. And, and um, we were, again, kind of desperately pleading with God in prayer to provide. Kathy was due to have an interview where um, she would be asked about fundraising, asked about how she was getting on with that. She was really nervous about it. And so we prayed. We trusted God. The day before the interview, an envelope arrived on the doormat. The remaining money that she needed was there. And provided in an amazing way. I think about a time when I was at university leading <coughs> a week of um, outreach events with the Christian Union there. Now, up until that point, none of my friends from my course had really shown any interest at all in Christianity. Um, and so it was the morning of the beginning of that week, um, and I thought, I'm just going to ask God a, a very specific thing. I'm going to ask him today to give me an opportunity with my friends to talk to them about the gospel. So that morning... 
I sat there in a lecture theatre at Manchester University. Um, there I was, sharing the gospel with uh, a Muslim, a Jew, a Hindu, uh, and an atheist. My Muslim friend came along to the event that day, and we had some great conversations. I think about um, the service of kind of dedication, thanksgiving, whatever you want to call it, that we had for um, Reuben and Boaz a few years ago. We wanted that to be an opportunity where we could invite some friends along and maybe they would hear something about the gospel. We had some close friends, some family members who um, we were definitely going to invite. That was kind of always on the cards. But then Kathy also felt a prompting to ask a few other people who she didn't actually know that well. It felt like kind of overstepping where their friendship was at. But she really felt God prompting her to do it. And so she stepped out in faith and she asked, Christine and Michelle, actually. <laughs> We'd forgotten about that. We were chatting about this the other day. Um, and that was the first time they came to Great Church. And what a blessing they've been to us since then. That's just a few stories from our life. Seeking to trust God in faith and seeing what he does with that. There's plenty more stories where we've seen that. And there's also plenty more stories where there have been opportunities and we've failed to trust God and we've not seen him work and then somewhere we have seen him work even though we fail to trust him he is a faithful god he is good but when we do live the life of faith then like the sister of this baby we often get to see extraordinary things happen and that's the story of god's people throughout history let me encourage you if you don't do this already to to take time to read Christian biographies, stories of Christians who have gone before us, who have, who have um, been faithful to God and seen God work in amazing ways. It's such an encouragement. And let me encourage you to share your stories in life groups this week. Um, think about it through the week. Encourage one another with ways you've seen God work. But more than any of those things, let me encourage you to be faith-filled, to, to trust God and to see what might happen. Don't write this off as being for someone else. Don't assume that this is for a different kind of Christian to you. God doesn't require you to be sorted. He doesn't require you to be a mature Christian. He doesn't require you to have your life in order, to be clever, to be extroverted, to be funny, or the right kind of Christian, whatever that is. He just calls you to trust him and not yourself. Here in Exodus 2, he worked through the faith of some parents and of a little slave girl. What qualifies you for God to work through you is not anything in you. It's all about him. If you trust him, who knows what might happen? But finally, just before we finish, we need to look at the, the last part of our section today because we haven't yet looked at verse 10. So far, this story has seemingly been a wonderful story of, of an anonymous family trusting God and seeing him work. It's not until verse 10 that we get the name of this baby. Up until now, no one's been named. The original writer has teed, teased us along with the story of a family and a rescue of a precious little baby. But then, in verse 10, we get to see who this baby is. Moses. And if you know your Bible at all, if you've heard anything about Christianity, you'll, you might see the significance of this. 
You see, these very words that we've been reading in the Bible were written by Moses. Aside from God, Moses is the great figure of this entire book, Exodus. Moses is going to be the one who will, 80 years from now, lead God's people out of Egypt as they are rescued from oppressive slavery and eventually brought into a land of their own. This isn't an ordinary baby. He will be the rescuer of God's people. God's response to the, fam- to the faith of this family, and he rescues the baby. That would be wonderful if that was the end of the story, but it's not. He has a much bigger plan. And you get a hint of that in the name that he's given. Remember, Michael told us last week, the name of this book, Exodus, means bringing out. God's people are brought out of Egypt. Well, Moses' name is an echo of that. And it means draw out. He was drawn out of the water. He, the place of death that he was put into became a place of life. Because Moses did not die. And then as a result, God's people did not die. But instead lived, lived in freedom from slavery. Lived in the promised land. Lived as the chosen people of God. All because this baby survived by God's grace and went on to be used by him. In God's plan, Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, is so much bigger than the story of one family. All of this is huge in the history of God's people, but it actually all points forward to something even bigger. And the parallels are so striking because thousands of years later, another tyrannical ruler would come. King Herod. He too would call for the death of Jewish baby boys, but another baby boy would be rescued from that, like Moses, and would be given a significant name. His name was Jesus, which means God saves. Moses was put into the place of death, but that place of death became a place of life as he was drawn out and led God's people to freedom. Jesus too was put into a place of death, and he actually died. And yet, that place of death also became a place of life. Jesus rose from death and he led his people to freedom. The Hebrews were slaves to the Egyptians and were rescued by Moses, but we are slaves to sin and death and powerless to escape. But God has drawn Jesus out from the place of death. He has made it a place of life, life for us, a life that is free from sin, a life that is full of hope and joy. As Moses' parents and as Moses' sister looked on in chapter 2 of Exodus, the world felt completely out of their control. They didn't know all this story that was about to happen. They just knew the situation they were in. They'd have felt powerless and afraid, but they trusted God. What they didn't know was that God had a much greater plan than they could possibly imagine. Not only would he keep their boy alive, not only would their boy be brought up by his own mum in the palace, but that boy would grow up to rescue God's people from this tyrannical pharaoh that they all feared. And God's plan was bigger still. Because their boy Moses would foreshadow an even more special baby, one who would grow up and rescue the world from slavery to sin and death. And so, when you see 
situations in your life that feel out of control, remember this. There is a God who is bigger than you could ever imagine. He is in control, even when we can't see what he's doing. Trust him. Know that he is for you. He's shown that through Moses. He's shown that through Jesus. So trust him and be faith-filled. You might not see the end of his plan. You may never understand what he's doing. Or you may get to see him act in extraordinary ways. But he is in control. You can be sure of that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for what you did for this family. Thank you for how you provided for them in their desperate situation where everything was out of control. But thank you that in providing for them, you did something far bigger than they even would have begin, begun to grasp. Thank you that from that place of death came... And that place of death became a place of life for God's people then. And thank you then for Jesus. That he went to death so that he could be brought to life and bring life in us all. Lead us from slavery to sin and death. Thank you for how you were in control there. And thank you for how you're in control today. Lord God, please help us to be those who... When, when life is out of control, when things seem beyond us, when things seem like they're slipping away from us, help us to seek to be faithful to you and to stand back and see what you do. Please give us glimpses at how you are in control. Glimpses like they had, where you do extraordinary things in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And when that doesn't happen yet, when we, when we don't get to see you working in that way, help us to keep believing that you're in control. Amen.